Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of true crime stories and nursing stories and all kinds of things that we talk about from the news, both good and bad. This week, we have a really interesting story to talk about. It's one of the very first stories that I did when I first started the podcast. In fact, it's not even available for you guys to even listen to because the sound quality is so bad. But I have always, I always think about the story because it is so interesting and fascinating, but um, it's very sad as well, very perplexing. And I just want to go through the whole thing very, you know, thoroughly so you can hear all the details. And I'm really curious to know what you guys think about this story and if you have any ideas of what happened, because it's absolutely, it's very mysterious. But before we get into that, I want to introduce my guest host for this week. He is a, an old friend of the podcast. He's a fellow podcaster himself and an, more importantly, an author, David, or as we know him, Nurse Papa. Welcome back. Hey, Tina. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you. <laughs> so, so always so great to have you on and good to see you again. Uh, just for those people who haven't heard from you in a while um, or are new to the show, Tell everybody, what is Nurse Papa? What is this book that you wrote? And tell, give us a little, maybe a little example of, of some of the, one of the stories out of it. I could do that. Well, Nurse Papa is, it is a podcast. I'm not actually making new episodes anymore because I'm trying to raise my own kids. But your listeners should check it out. There's some good stuff on there. It's still up in the interwebs right at this moment. It all started with the book. Um, Nurse Papa is about my experience as a dad to two kids and you know, my life as a pediatric oncology nurse. And it's pretty intense, actually, parenting and being a, being a pediatric oncology nurse. And the book can get pretty sad at times and pretty serious. But I did put in these chapters in between that w- would kind of you know lighten things up. So I thought your readers might appreciate this story. So a while back, and this is a story that my f- a friend told me, a while back we had a patient who had a d- disease called retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the retinas. And it's super dangerous because it can go back through the optic nerve into the brain and bad stuff happens. So sometimes the patients opt to have their eyes removed to pre- prevent that, and it just has to happen. So this little boy had had one eye removed and Many of your listeners will know it's called the enucleation. And, but it's okay because this boy was not the only child that was left in the dark in the family. His two parents actually were both blind from birth. So the only person with full sight in the family was the little boy's um, infant brother who was perpetually on his dad's back in one of those carriers because that's how you manage your kids when you are blind. You just attach them to you which I'm thinking about doing to my own kids because it seems like a really good idea. Anyway, but you know, in this family of four, there were three working eyes, which is really interesting. So on top of being blind, this dad was actually also kind of rude, which um, is interesting because you know, d- just because you have a disability doesn't mean you're polite, I've learned. <laughs> um, so the nurse going into this room was kind of prepared for that, knew that she might have to you know, deal with some, some tension. And she was in there at um, her patient's bedside, leaning over, and the dad was off to the side with his infant son. And all of a sudden, she heard the dad say, sit. And the nurse was really confused. And then he said, leave it. And then she was about to get up and confront him. And then she felt his hot, warm breath on the back of her neck. And she turned around, fully prepared to encounter him. And it was a Labrador. It was their seeing eye dog. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so funny stuff like that happens all the time and kind of 
gives us a break from the more serious stories. But yeah, um, people should check out the book. It's called Nurse Papa. You can buy it on Amazon. Yeah, and that's uh, what I love about the book is it, it, is, it is kind of interwoven throughout the book, uh, throughout the more, I guess, stories that kind of pull at your heartstrings and are are somewhat tearjerkers. They are balanced out with some comedy, I guess, some comic relief um, every now and then. And so it makes for a really nice balanced read. And it's um, very enjoyable. Very enjoyable. Thank you, Tina. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Absolutely. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So I guess we can get started with this story, this week's story. Um, I know I, I told you guys quite a fascinating story. It is very mysterious, quite very perplexing. I I cannot emphasize enough how all of the different details. It it's quite long, really. Uh, but we're going to get through this story, and I'm going to try to do it justice. And David, you just jump in with any remarks that you have and we'll see if we can get through this story. So this, I'll do my best, Tina. I know you always do. So this is the story of Cynthia Elizabeth Hack or she, as she went she went by Cindy. She was a nurse in British Columbia. She was born June 12th of 1944 to parents Otto, a retired Canadian Air Force colonel, and Tilly Hack. She was a house, housewife. Cindy was the eldest of six children and grew up in the suburbs of Vancouver. British Columbia. Her father was reported to be of a stern disposition and harsh disciplinarian, easy for me to say. Cindy excelled academically in attempts to impress her father and remain on his good side. So it happens sometimes, David, um, I think with children, they learn manipulative behavior sometimes because they have to learn how to handle the people who are kind of abusive in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that why my kids don't behave at all? <laughs> mm, I don't I'm know. Too easy on them. You're just way I'm too, too easy on them. I'm too easy on them. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen your kids in videos and stuff. I don't think you're t- being completely honest about that. They seem really sweet. Oh, yeah, they are incredibly <laughs> sweet. They, they know just just how far to go. Okay. They, well, I mean, that's just being a kid, right? You know yeah. where the they know where the line is, and they're going to go right up next to it. Mm-hmm. So after graduating high school, Cindy decided to dedicate her life to helping others and become a nurse. She was in nursing school um, when her family decided to move to France. This is pretty interesting, I think. Um, She wrote to her family frequently, but the letters didn't quite uh, quell her loneliness. Her letters primarily detailed her day-to-day life activities and her experiences in nursing school. But at some point, the letters uh, start talking about a mysterious fiance, this man that she met. She told, I know, kind of interesting. All of a sudden, she's like, hey, there's this person I've met. And the relationship went from zero to 100 quite quickly. And she told her family that she met him during an internship, one of her, I guess, clinicals at a local hospital. Yeah, that's how my parents met, actually. Really? Yeah. My dad was a doctor and my mom was a nurse. Interesting. Well, yeah. and that's what she uh, had told her family. So then this relationship bloomed between her and, the, and this man. And soon they apparently were inseparable. She wrote about their plans for the future. But she didn't really answer her questions when they would ask about her fiance. They wouldn't even, uh, she wouldn't even tell them the name of this person. She would just maybe sort of it was just maybe it was just really hard to pronounce or something. I don't know because I mean she was this was a and these were letters so this isn't FaceTime. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, 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 I mean they didn't have FaceTime in 1944. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, she was born in 1944. Okay, but still, yes. yeah, way, yes. way, way, way before the days of video chatting. So yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I wonder how many of your listeners have actually written a letter before. Mm, that's interesting. I would say quite a few of them have. There's, I think we have people of all all ages and that come from all different um, walks of life. Not, it's not just Gen Zers listening right now? I don't right think now. so. I, th- I know okay. we have some of those too. Um, but I would say even of those people, I bet there's some people that have written some letters. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe they're not. Gonna, they're going to get lots of hate, hate letters for this one so far. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to get all these letters. So now she talked about the fact that this mystery man suddenly developed cancer, a quite aggressive type of cancer that would ultimately give him where he would get a diagnosis that would where he only had about six months to live or less. Oh, man. Yes. So this, of course, she was devastated and she explained, you know, how heartbroken she was. But then uh, she decided to go on a ski trip with her fiance as sort of a last hurrah, I guess, before he really starts getting sick. And then he unfortunately took his life during this trip. And he said that he did that because he didn't want Cindy to remember him in a state of decline. Um, And so he took his life. So He just went on that ski lift to the sky. Right. And so she that's what she told her family. That was her story. And so then by the time they came back to British Columbia, back home, they were kind of wondering where was this mystery person because there's just no no evidence whatsoever that he ever existed. You know, she never did tell them the name of this person. There's no grave. You would think that there would be pictures of her with him or just some sort of proof. And there was absolutely nothing. And I think that the general consensus among her family members was that maybe she had made it up you know, because she was lonely and just wanted something, you know, to be able to to talk about and wanted her family to be excited. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. So while she was in nursing school, though, she did meet a man by the name of Roy Makepeace. He was a psychiatrist and he was nearly 20 years older than her. And soon after she graduated in 1966, she got married to Roy. She established a career working with preschool-age children with special needs a job that she really found rewarding. And in 1982, they separated after 16 years of marriage. So according to Cindy, Roy was physically abusive throughout their entire relationship. And her family did not realize this. They said they they really didn't see any indication of him being abusive. And they were quite shocked when she told them this. But she said she would conceal her bruises and black eyes with makeup. He did admit that he slapped her twice, but he said he never did anything that would rise to the level of abuse that Cindy was accusing him of. It really shows the kind of evolving norms of how we're supposed to treat each other. Right. (laughs) He just slapped her a few times. No big deal. Right. Just the fact that he would say, I only only slapped her twice. Yeah, that's just, I guess it is sort of indicative maybe of of the times, but I still don't think that even then it would have been normal for Amanda to slap a woman. I would hope not. I don't know. Her family was really supportive of the separation though. They, they did support Cindy and she was able to get a place of her own. A few months after moving into her new place though, she started receiving unusual phone calls that initially she just dismissed as pranks, but then the, the calls continue and She's not able to downplay the calls anymore uh, because, you know, she's like, well, surely if it's mischievous teenagers, they're going to just move on after a while. They're not going to continue yeah. this. It was a male's, a male voice on the other line, one that Cindy did not recognize. Did it sound like this? Uh, David, was it you? <laughs> oh, no. I would, how, how's that possible? I don't know this person. I don't know. Maybe you did time traveling or something. I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, that's, an, that's for the next podcast. Right? Okay. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so the caller did know Cindy's name and started to detail horrendous acts of violence and quite perverse acts at times that he told her he wanted to subject her to. She reported the disturbing calls to the police, and it's estimated that she received nearly 100 harassing phone calls. The calls 
were just the beginning of Cindy's terror. Over the next few weeks, she contacted police to report on separate instances that her stalker had smashed her porch lights, had thrown a rock into her window, and had even entered her house to slash her bed pillow. This is like a horror movie, basically. It, it really is. This is scary for a, a single woman living by herself, uh, you know, in a, in a single dwelling. I I did some travel nursing in the, the past year or so, and it's it is different being you know it's been a long time since I've lived by myself, so it was so unnerving sometimes, even just walking from my car to the apartment. But one thing that I did like was the fact that I lived on it was an upper level and. There really was one way in uh, other than the balcony, which, you know, sh- hopefully wouldn't be accessible. So really, there's one way in and it was like a key. you had to swipe in order to be able to get into the building. So I felt yeah. safe while I was in there, but I can't imagine if I was in a house. And that was one thing when I was deciding where to stay. I knew I didn't want to stay in a house because I would never be able to sleep. I would be worried constantly because all of the points of entry in a home. Do you often worry about your points of entry? Just All the like, time. Okay. <laughs> Constantly. I'm, <laughs> I mean, look at what I do. Look at this podcast. You know, know that I'm always obsessed with the, the multiple ways that people can hurt you and kill you and attack you. It's yeah. like, I think that's why women tend to be fascinated by true crime. I think it's a way of going, okay, now that I know that that can happen. I'll do what I can to avoid that situation. <laughs> I don't know. That's just a theory I have. So are most listeners of true crime women? Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. It is true. Not all of them, obviously, but uh, definitely the majority. So I, it is horrifying for me to think of this woman, this young, you know, single woman living by herself in this home uh-huh. and experiencing these phone calls. I just can't imagine it. I just, I can't imagine staying in the house myself. I mean, yeah. I think it's horrible that she probably had to keep buying pillows because it kept being slashed. <laughs> right. That's the biggest tragedy you can think of in this. I mean, that's just going to add up eventually. <laughs> well, I wonder if you can write that. Can you write that off on your taxes? I like, would think that the window would be more expensive than the bed pillow, but yeah, to okay. replace. So he, this person apparently even slashed her telephone line um, on a couple of different occasions. And it, she started receiving threatening letters that were mm. made using clippings from newspapers and magazines. Oh, that's classic. Very I wonder if he like cut out each letter so they were like yeah. different sizes. Mm-hmm. So that they okay. couldn't tell, narrow it down to one specific type of newspaper. Yeah. I like or this. Ma- this, magazine. Is, this is, I mean, this is like really creepy the way you're supposed to do it. Right. If you're going to you know, like, if you're going to like make somebody scared, this is what you do. This is the, Right, it's got this is the all algorithm. the elements. This is the algorithm, right? We just need some scary music in the background. We really do. <laughs> I don't know how scary that was. I'm sorry, that just sounded like a first grader playing trumpet. <laughs> so one of the letters that she received um, said, "Soon, Cindy." That's all it said. Can I try that? Actually. Soon, Cindy. Yeah, that's scary. At, le- I'm, yeah. at least they didn't have like voicemail so that, you know, at the time, so that she didn't have to hear it. She only could see it. But still, those creepy letters, um, you know, the pasted. Thing, yeah, what bothers me, it's that it's very nonspecific. It I'd is. like to know what's going to happen. It's mm-hmm. like, soon, Cindy, what? Like, you're well, going to receive another letter? <laughs> I know. Apparently, though, he was specific in the phone conversations. So there okay. were specific details given in the phone conversations. So Perfect. with her okay. multiple calls to police, one of the officers who was involved with Cindy's case became concerned for her safety so much that his name was Patrick or Pat McBride that he would routinely check on Cindy and later offered to move in with Cindy to offer some sort of protection. She accepted, and McBride moved into the spare bedroom that month. The stalker didn't seem to de- uh, didn't seem deterred with the officer's presence as the harassment continued. During his stay with her, her phone lines were cut again. About mm-hmm. a month after her phone lines were severed, McBride discovered Cindy's ex-husband, Roy, parked in the alleyway behind Cindy's house. He had two guns with him, and when he was questioned, 
He said that he was fearful for Cindy's safety and had taken it upon himself to patrol the area. So he was actually looking for whoever was doing this to her. This this is the make peace guy? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Right. And they were in contact still, maybe. Or is that not true? Because they were... They had some anim- they had animosity. They did. Because he slapped her twice, at least. I know, but I think that it was sort of a back and forth kind of thing. I think they were able to kind of maybe work through those things because she would call him and tell him um, of these things going on. And so okay. All right. it she wasn't. Made peace with make peace. She did. And so it wasn't completely out of the realm of possibility that he would be there trying to help her because she had called him to tell him that these things were, were going on. Okay, so we've just added another element, yeah. another person to suspect or to not suspect. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that officer that had moved in moved out after a month, but the harassment became much more menacing. On January yeah. 27th in 1983, Cindy's friend Agnes Woodcock arrived at Cindy's house for a planned visit. They were supposed to be getting together for the evening. And so when she knocked on the door, nobody came to the door. And so she obviously was concerned. She walked around the house and found Cindy in her garage. She was crouched on the ground and had a black nylon stocking tied firmly around her neck. That's totally normal, Tina. Well, I'm thinking that it was not for this yeah. situation. Maybe I just revealed something about my personal life. Yeah. Let's go on. Move yeah, on. you probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Cindy told Agnes that someone had grabbed her from behind and assaulted her while she was walking to her garage. There was another man waiting in the garage, according to her, but she wasn't able to see the men's faces. All she remembered was that they were wearing white sneakers. So there were this is this is Cindy's Cindy's telling the story, right? right? Agnes did not see any men. Cindy is saying that when she was walking to the garage, she got attacked by someone who took her into the garage, and when they got in there, there was another man waiting. And then she was attacked by both of these men. The police felt like Cindy wasn't being completely honest with them. They felt like there was something that she was kind of withholding. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters. And it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now, their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there, get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So they did two polygraphs and said that she did admit that she recognized one of her attackers because in these polygraphs, apparently it's, they indicated that she was being somehow deceitful. So she refused to name who it was because he had threatened to hurt her family. Were they still in France at this time? No, they were back. Okay. So the incident prompted Cindy to move to a new home. She painted her car a different color. I she, love this detail. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> why would she paint her car? I mean, did she really like her car? Why didn't she just get a new car or... Right. A bus pass? I don't know. It just—I <laughs> don't know. It seems weird that she would paint her car instead of just that, getting a completely different car. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, just trade it in. I'm questioning her judgment here. Yeah. Well, she also changed her last name to James, so now she's known as Cindy James. Okay, it's got, got a good ring to it. Mm-hmm. She even hired a private detective. His name was Ozzy Cab- uh, Caban. 
And despite her precautions, she could not evade her stalker and the harassment continued. So they found her almost immediately after she moved, changed her the color of her car, changed her name, all of these things. Somehow this person still knew where she lived. So in October 1983, in October of 1983, a year after the first phone call, she, this is horrible. So guys, um, ooh, oh, I'm yeah, gonna, disclaimer. I'm, yes, because I, and it's not as if though I haven't already mentioned things that are way more horrific, but there are people that when it comes to animal cruelty, it's like that is a no-go. So I, yeah. I totally understand that. I love animals myself. Um, so I do want to say this is particularly gruesome. Yeah, it is horrible. It is horrible. So I just want to kind of warn you there. But she she found three dead cats hanging from trees in her garden. Now, were they hanging from their tails? Oh, gosh, I David. I just, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just can't. It, it really is heartbreaking. I hate it so much. I mean, I don't want to think about anyone being harmed, but innocent, poor innocent animals. It just drives me You crazy. got really emotional there, Tina. I, I just can't do it. I can't. I, I could never do an, a, a, a whole podcast about animals. Cats being killed? I just couldn't do it. No. No, I don't know if that would be that interesting anyway. It probably wouldn't. And nobody no. would listen to it. Thank goodness. I mean, I was thinking about doing that on my you next podcast. <laughs> Come on now. So, you know what I was going to call it? Oh, I probably don't want to know, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm just going to call it Three Dead Cats. It's nice. That'd be a short story, though. Yeah, that's it. That's That would be the end of the podcast. Well, there was a note tied uh, to the cats that said, you're can next. I, can I read it? You're oh, next. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what it said. So and once again, very nonspecific. Like, you're next what? Your next cat killing will be free? I mean, what? what's... <laughs> you get three, you do three, yeah. you get one free? I don't know. It's not your as in the possessive sense. It's your as in you are the contraction. Oh, oh yes. you're going to be the next cat. Well, yeah, essentially. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So this private, invest private investigator that she had hired had given her a two-way radio so that they could be in constant communication. This came in handy when he overheard an odd commotion on January 30th in 1984. This is going on for quite a while. He rushed over to her house and found her lying unconscious on the floor with a black nylon stocking tied around her neck and a note stabbed through the back of her hand. Oh my gosh. With a paring knife. Yeah. Can I, can I read the note? Oh, you definitely should. Well, the note said, now you must die. Which I appreciate because there's there's no ambigu ambiguity. We know right? exactly what she must do. Yes, he's no longer, you know, yeah, he's he's just going to come right out and say it because apparently she wasn't getting it before. That, no, the, the three cats they didn't really tell her what was going on. Yeah, so that's followed by a derogatory uh, remark about women that we won't include. And then no. the, the private investigator said uh, later on, talking about this incident, she told me that she noticed a man coming through the gate. The next thing that she remembers is being hit on the side of the head with a piece of wood or something of that nature. She then remembered being held down on the floor and she remembered a needle going into her arm. She remembers a lot of things without any details. Uh -huh. This is very convenient. Mm -hmm. So police were quick to notice that there was no forced entry. And although there was a needle mark on her arm, there were no substances found in her system. Despite their growing suspicion, they continued to investigate the case. So we can kind of all tell the people who are listening to this are like, okay, this is totally. Let me just say, you have to listen to this story through the to the end because it's it's not necessarily everything is not what it seems in the story. You think we're we're losing listeners right now? I I just no, I don't think so. I just think that people I don't think so either should be cautious before they jump to conclusions as it would seem that the police did in this case. Yes. So don't go anywhere. Don't it's go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. Cindy was attacked again in July, 1984. Once again, with needle marks on her arm and a black nylon stocking tied around her neck, police mm -hmm. tapped her phone and stationed police officers to monitor her house in shifts, but they stopped after months passed with no further incident. So while the police 
is outside of her house. No one comes along. And while they have her phone monitored, no one calls. Mm -hmm. They had spent apparently nearly a million dollars on this investigation at this point, and they were no closer to finding any answers. Which is crazy because I could literally like call the police station where I live and tell them I'm being held at gunpoint and they would not come. Like, I don't, I, I, this is a really great police department. <laughs> yeah. This isn't British Columbia. It's not in the uh, United States. Canada. They take crime fighting ser- more seriously there, mm-hmm. I think. Well, or in, it was in, who knows, maybe in the early eighties, maybe it was, um, they were more diligent. I don't know, but yeah. they were, I've definitely taken this very seriously or they appeared to be. So on December 11th in 1985, Cindy woke up in a ditch six a miles, ditch. I know, six miles from her house with, again, needle marks, stocking that had uh, kind of become her stalker's calling card. She had no idea how she had gotten there. And she was wearing a man's work boot on one foot. What? Yeah. And a single glove. Her body was completely covered in cuts and bruises. And soon after the attack, her friend Agnes and her husband, Tom, started staying at Cindy's house to, to protect her and help her so that she could feel safe and be, be able to, to relax and rest in her home. Uh-huh. One night in April of 1986, Cindy bursts into their bedroom and said that she heard something. Agnes and Tom also heard a rustling and ran to investigate. Cindy's basement was found to be engulfed in flames. Oh, my God. But firefighters managed to put out the fire before it did much damage to the house. Also, the firefighters in this place are incredibly efficient. Uh-huh. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Mm-hmm. If okay. you're going to be stalked and have your house lay on fire, mm-hmm. it's good to have good cops and good firemen around. I'm yes. sure you've got many listeners who are employed in those fields. So yes. I salute you. Yeah. Oh, I do, too. I tell them that all the time. I really appreciate them. So Tom told police he saw a man standing outside the house watching the house, but the police didn't believe it. They were certain that Cindy had set the fire herself, even though her friend had saw actually yeah. saw someone. There were no fingerprints on the windows of the house, but the fire started inside the house. So Cindy was soon admitted into a psychiatric facility. She spent 10 weeks there and two different psychiatrists determine she had been staging her own attacks while suffering psychotic breaks. Once, That's nuts. Yeah. One psychiatrist believed that Cindy was uh, had been sexually abused as an adolescent or a child. As a result of the abuse, she developed dissociative identity disorder, according to one of the psychiatrists, and had tr- trouble distinguishing between periods of neurosis and reality. She also... Don't we all? Well, you know, she also Not wrote... Not quite like that. <laughs> no. She also wrote in a journal while at the facility, I still feel suicide is my best option in an unbearable situation. And as soon as I get out of here, I will carry out my plan. So after she was released from the facility, she was fired from her job and moved into a new house. While seeing a therapist during this time, her mental health seemed to be improving remarkably. And for about a year, she didn't report any harassment. But the attacks soon started again in October. Of course they did. Yeah. In October of 1988, Cindy was found unconscious in her car at home, naked from the waist down, hogtied, and with another black nylon stocking around her neck. Were there any notes? Not that, uh, not this time. Okay. Okay. So, let me know. Oh, I will. Absolutely. You got those. You got those notes. <laughs> yeah. Cindy told police during this time that she believed her ex-husband was behind the attacks. But he continued, of course, to deny any involvement. He had even been out of the country when one of the particular incidents took place. So that was Mm kind of like, "Mm." although it is possible, I guess, you know, to hire someone to do something for you. It still seems a little little far-fetched, but she was convinced it was him. Then on May 25th in 1989, Cindy disappeared. The day she vanished, she had deposited her paycheck from her new nursing job, purchased a gift for a friend's son. She had gone to a beauty salon and brought, uh, bought groceries. But when her friend Agnes showed up at Cindy's home that night for a planned card game, she wasn't there. Her car surfaced at a shopping mall parking lot with blood on the driver's side door and items from her wallet beneath the vehicle. 
with the groceries and wrapped gift still in the back seat. But Cindy was nowhere to be found. This is very suspicious. Isn't it? So approximately two weeks later, on June 8th in 1989, Don Vinish, a city employee, stumbled upon Cindy's body in the yard of an abandoned house. He said her face was completely black. I think it had been punched in. A cord was wrapped around one ankle and a wrist. Vinish stated that Cindy's death couldn't have been a suicide, but police disagreed. They believed that the nearly seven years of stalking incidents had weighed heavily on her, and she saw suicide as the only viable option to end the harassment. They also stated that Cindy had a lethal dose of morphine in her system, but they argued it would have taken at least 15 minutes to take effect, and a knot specialist determined that she could have tied herself into the bound position in just three minutes. I don't get it. What happened? I I thought this whole time we were assuming that maybe she was making this all up, but I know. how could she have punched her face in? Yeah. Well, I I don't know what they were thinking, but I I think that they were just wanting to tidy this whole thing up and say she took her own life and let's move on. They didn't want to spend any more resources or time on Cindy James is kind of how I took it. So we have no idea what happened to this woman. Well, although Canadian authorities have concluded that she died by suicide at this point, the coroner was unable to determine the manner of death and listed it as an unknown event. Uh-huh. He didn't have like a category for a face punched in? Right. So this is not a classic good nurse, bad nurse kind of story because she's not really a bad nurse or a bad person. She's has a, I mean, we don't know what happened. She's she's clearly has a mental disorder, but she also seems to be have been a victim of crime. I don't. This is very confusing to me. It is very confusing, and it just yeah. There's so many questions with this. Because, I have so many questions. I mean, really, if you, there there was some more details about this as well because when they found her in that yard in the in the abandoned house, her feet she was completely barefoot, and her feet yes. were clean. They were not dirty, although she was a mile, over a mile away from her car. Mm -hmm. So if she had walked there from over a mile, you would think that her feet would be dirty, but the the people that found her and that did the investigation said there was no way she walked there. Because were there, okay, were there any dead dead cats hanging around at this time? (laughs) I don't think so. No dead cats. No. So I, it seems very suspicious. She did, she definitely had morphine in her system. And one observation that people make is that she couldn't have injected herself with morphine and then walked over a mile. Okay. I don't know about that, but go on. I mean, (laughs) enough to kill her. I mean, they are thinking that she wouldn't have been able to inject herself with enough medicine to kill her and then walk over a mile because there was there's no evidence of with no with no shoes on with no shoes on but there's no evidence around her anywhere yeah she she had injected herself Mm -hmm. yeah i I don't know there has to be somebody else was involved in this Mm -hmm. yeah and it it's it's interesting because there almost has to be an el- element of mental health, you know, with with this and I'm sure that there is no way that all of these different things happened to her and and yet there was no evidence of it uh, of there ever being an intruder. They actually could never you know see anyone or or they never heard anyone call in, you know, from the tapped line. Although if there was somebody that close to her, Either it was somebody so close to her that they knew everything that they were doing, and if they if they are that close, then they know that her phone is being tapped, so they're not going to call when the phone is being tapped. Or yeah, so if they know the police are watching, they're not going to try to come around. So I, I, I get that too, but a lot of it is very, very suspicious. And really, I think once the police um, get their sights set on a certain idea. It's really, really, they almost get tunnel vision and it's really hard for them to shift gears. And once they honed in on her being, you know, having mental health issues and her making all of this stuff up and 
that there really is, there was no, no crime committed whatsoever. I think they were just going to stick with that and they were not willing to let it, let go of that at all. Yeah. A million dollars later and they still don't have (laughs) any idea what's going on. Yeah. And neither do we. I find this very, uh, unsatisfying, Tina. Well, I'm just going to tell you, it's, um, it's a story that I just find fascinating because it's trying to put all the pieces together and fig- see if you can kind of figure out maybe what did happen or have your own ideas of what happened. I do think that she had some psychosis and some sort of mental health issues that caused her, um, whether it's dissociative identity disorder or whatever it was, that caused her to be the person that was probably per- per- perpetrating a lot of this stuff. That's what yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's clear. But there's also lots of unanswered questions as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll never know. Yeah. I What bothers me um, sometimes about this story is that her, hus- her ex-husband was a psychiatrist. And so he would have access to medications that could cause her to, you know, have some mental health issues or to... I don't know, lose consciousness for periods of time. And I just, that kind of bothers me. And she, she did say that he was abusive to her. And so it's, I don't think it's completely cut and dry. I don't know. I think it's far beyond that. Yeah. It's so uh, not cut and wet. Mm -mm. So, but that is the story of Cindy James. And if you guys want to see more there's there are so many youtube um videos out there on this story it's really it's almost endless the information that you can get there's a whole website that her sister put together about her and dedicated to her trying to find uh who did this to her because you could take this whole story and spin it in a direction that does make it seem as though there was a person out there the whole time if you really think about the people staying with her that they saw someone. The detectives um, who were investigating alluded that they 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 saw evidence like the cut phone line and and that sort of thing. Or phone calls would come in while they were there. The one that moved in, but I think there's some speculation or maybe some thought that they were kind of um, enamored with Cindy, and they became kind of caught up with her beauty and were were just sort of um, they enjoyed taking care of this damsel in distress, I guess, is is the theory that some people have. Okay. That still doesn't make sense, but okay. I don't know. <laughs> I want answers, Tina. I, I want answers. Sometimes there just aren't any answers. I guess we just have to be okay with that. The Be okay with the unknown. Yep. That's what life is all about, I guess, just kind of moving forward. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So, of course, I let her use it, and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So, just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order.
I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Well, for the good nurse story, I wanted us to talk a little bit about alarm fatigue. So for those of you working in hospitals, working at the bedside, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I did a story or or I did a talk um, to a bunch of attorneys recently about the Redonda Vaught case. They invited me to come and speak at one of their, I don't even know what you call it, but they they do events. these. They had had an event, and so they wanted me to talk about it. And I talked about alarm fatigue and uh, and about how a, if you you know don't think about the specific things that Redonda Vaught did in that case and try to analyze it and pick it apart. Look at it from the the point of view of anybody working in a hospital, working at the bedside, and having alarm after alarm after alarm and alert after alert after alert. Um, you know, people people are like, how do you miss the word paralytic? How do you miss the word alert? How do you miss, uh, you know, there's a big alert. There's a big, I, I, I heard that so many times throughout that whole case. And I just wanted to laugh because when, what, where I work, those things are everywhere happening all the time, constantly. Everything is beeping. Everything is alarming. Everything it, it is red. <laughs> Everything has an exclamation point. So, yeah, it's very, it's very real. Me too. There's always a monitor going off and reading VTAC or something. And it's like, because they're, you know, um, kitty cats are not on correctly. And it's just, it's a real problem in kind of modern mess and how we experience um, the technology. Yeah. And the thing is, uh, we're going to talk about some nurses who stepped up and did something about this at their facility, which I think is really cool. But I wanted to just talk a little bit about it just because it's a it's a huge problem and it's frustrating for nurses and other staff members, not just nurses, for, for doctors, um, for any provider putting in orders. They get alert, alert after alert after alert um, mm-hmm. that pops up about uh, interactions and allergies and you ha- what do you have to do? You have to hit override so many times. You're having to hit override all the time or acknowledge. You get used to it. Yeah. You're constantly hitting acknowledge. You're always having to do this. So you run, uh, as a nurse, you run to the the cabinet to to get out a medication and you you type in your password or put your fingerprint and and then you tell it which patient you're wanting to get a medicine for and it gives this huge alert that's just like, or as soon as, as, soon as you pick a, pay, uh, a type of medication and it's like, oh, wait, this is a, a bleeding, you know, there are bleeding precautions. Are you sure you want to give this? And, and it's a medication that you literally give to several patients a day, every single time you work. And it, it just gets old after a while when so many drugs have this. Um, and so I think it's a real problem. And the thing is, Hospitals a lot of times don't want to do anything about it because those alarms help protect them. With liability. Yeah. They are protecting them, but they're not really protecting the patient because if they're causing the staff to be numb to them, they aren't causing you. They're supposed to stop you. They're supposed to make you go, whoa. They're supposed to stop the monotony. They're supposed to kind of cut through your routine. Yeah, let, well, and also just let you know what is an emergency and what is not, what yeah. is relevant. Yes, absolutely. But if every if it's everything you go to try to pull out of the uh, medicine cabinet or everything you touch and everything you hear is a, a, is alarming, is an alert, is a warning, is a caution, it's not cutting through anything because it's part of the routine. And that's the problem I have with it. So, there, so what do these people do? What, do they, what happened? Well... Apparently, this is a nurse-led initiative to reduce alarm fatigue at Florida's Mayo Clinic. And this is from healthleadersmedia.com was where I took this story. So it says, after a Florida hospital surgical intensive care unit improved clinical alarm management practices, staff became more sensitive to alarms and fewer alarms were missed, according to a study published in Critical Care Nurse. So 
they implemented a unit-based alarm management bundle for critical for cri- oh yeah always got to have a bundle for cri- I know, for bundles <laughs> those stinking bundles <laughs> they become annoying themselves don't they so but it does detail uh, this um, bundle is so apparently it worked it's not that you know that bundles are bad but if you do add too many then all of a sudden those things you know become part of the problem but yes in this case it does appear as though this worked it created a standardized approach to alarm management so nurses could better match the monitoring needs of individual patients instead of in being just standard across the board. So clinical alarms are important, but they also contribute to a noisy hospital environment. For patients and clinicians, said lead author Stephanie Bosma, an advanced practice nurse at the hospital. With high sensitivity and low specific specificity, monitors can... G- generate an overwhelming number of alarms, many of which are false or non-actionable alerts, as we know. Mm -hmm. She said, our project gave alarm management skills much needed attention and introduced a new tool to help staff maximize the benefits of clinical alarms. So the name of this bundle is CEASE, C-E-A-S-E. It's called the CEASE bundle. It's a five-step tool. The C stands for communication. It focuses on working with colleagues, fellow nurses, respiratory therapists, providers, and patient care technicians to identify patient-specific goals and determine when to suspend or silence alarms while performing care activities that induce non-actionable alarms. So this is a little, you know, for me, I have some control issues sometimes when I'm working, but that scares me a little bit to think of giving that power over to someone else to say, you can mute that alarm while you're doing a bath because, you know, if it's a, if it's a, you know, patient care tech, because I've had people mute alarms before, like for their, the patient's O2 because, Hey, no, they're, o- I'm, I'm going to take it off their finger. So it's not going to be on. So I'm going to mute it. Yes. So it's not going, it makes perfect sense. But then when they forget to turn it back on or put the, the CPO back on the patient. Yes. It's, so dangerous and how you know that's i questioned that because i'm like you know that's my patient i'm i'm responsible for that patient and if i don't even know that you've done that somebody's in there giving a bath and i'm in another room and i may not be back in that room for another 45 minutes to an hour they could walk out of that room to go in another room and that patient's laying there with no o2 monitor on and they need to be monitored so that mm-hmm. It's one area where it bothers me a little bit. Not saying that there's not an option. I'm just well, saying, scary. It's a work in progress. Yeah. So this the E in in this uh, acronym stands for electrodes. It targets proper skin preparation for daily ECG electrode and pulse oximeter changes. I think this is great because so many times those silly EKGs, uh, that EKG monitor is going off and it is nothing but the only problem is that it's a man with hairy chest and somebody didn't bother to shave an area to, you know, make a place for the electrode to go. Or somebody is just really diaphoretic and it's just, come, they just need to be, just be cleaned, cleaned off and replaced. That yeah. happens a lot. They're just not put on correctly or accurately. So I love this. So electrodes is the E. Appropriateness is the A. So encompasses choosing appropriate monitoring parameters with physician and interprofessional team members. This is really important, I think, because there are some patients who they're going to, you know, their O2 set is just going to live in the low areas. You know, they're sure. not going to be, yeah, they're not going to be 90 issues. and above. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe a COPD person whose O2 runs around 82 or, you know, whatever. but our monitors are set to go off if it gets below 88. So it goes off all the time. And what happens is someone goes in there and just hits silence. Even family members will do that because they get tired of hearing it. Or they go, someone will go in there and increase their oxygen, which we don't want to happen, especially on somebody who that's just Lives where, yeah. right? That's just where they live. You don't, you don't want to be increasing their oxygen just to try to get this, you know, false, O2 reading so that it will stop alarming. That's so we so we feel better when we look at the monitor. <laughs> yeah, I feel so much better. Feel, no. he's Patient, great. <laughs> not so much, but I feel great. He's blue, but I'm I'm good. <laughs> yeah, he's getting confused because <laughs> yeah. 
So the S stands for setup. That includes customizing alarm parameters for individual patients at the beginning of each shift. So that's like kind of thinking about this at the beginning of the shift. I, I mean, I really, I like this. I know that these bundles can be frustrating, but. No, it, all of it makes sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. All of that together is helpful. And then E is for education. It involves it continuing education on clinical alarm monitoring system. I think that the E should also stand for edu- educating the staff on the important importance of the alarms because there are some staff who maybe don't realize how important the alarms are. They know that they go off all the time, but they're annoying and they see us ignoring the alarms. And so they think that they're not important. And so when they go in there to give a bath, they will turn off the O2 alarm, you know, hit to turn it down or turn it off because they know it's going to be going off while they're doing their bath. And it's, it's not ingrained in them how important it is to make sure that that's turned back on when they replace that, that O2 monitor or, you know, rather than turning it off when you start the bath, do that last, replace that O2 probe, the very last thing right before, you know, and there you go. just clean their finger and put it back on or a different finger or whatever. And that way you don't even have to have it off at all. Well, education is always a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what CEASE stands for. It's a CEASE bundle. And they introduced it during a regular staff meeting and descriptions were placed around the unit for easy reference. And they said 82% of nurses reported via a survey administered to all of the SICU nurses before and following implementation that the CEASE bundle helped decrease the alarm fatigue and 83% reported the bundle was helpful and they would continue to use it. I mean, that's a lo- that's saying a lot if they're going to continue to use it because nurses are, we are over all of the charting and documenting of these bundles sometimes that seem. Well, let's give it a couple months and see if they're still charting. <laughs> well, I, I just think that alarm fatigue is something that is so important to nurses. It, it We understand it. That is something we definitely get. Yeah, for sure. You know, if you've ever walked into a patient's room that, and their heart rate is like, in the 40s, and it is not supposed to be. And you're just like, why has somebody not told me this? They're supposed to be monitored. And you go out there and the the it's been turned down at the desk, or it's mo- or it is mon- it is alarming and no one is saying a word. It's been like that for 30 minutes. And it's so frustrating. And you're just like, it's because no one takes these alarms seriously. But there are plenty of times when you absolutely have to take them seriously, or people will die. One of the examples that I gave in the the talk that I did was, you know, you have you have a, a in that sort of same situation. But what if you have a nurse who goes to get a medication out of a, the cabinet, and then someone walks up to her as she's getting the medications out of the cabinet and asks the question? So she's trying to be a, a good colleague and answering as she's pulling something out, and she grabs a medication that lowers your heart rate as opposed to increases it and or whatever blood pressure and then she leaves and isn't paying attention and goes and gives the medication and then leaves th- she's for whatever reason thought she gave the right medication and then she goes on and then the the patient's alarm starts going off because their heart rate is doing this wonky thing or their blood pressure but it's been going off it's been going off. It's been wrong all morning long. So no one is paying a bit of attention to it. But it's real now because this medication error happened. And so that's the thing that can happen is, yes, medication errors happen. We make mistakes. We're human beings. We, As hard as we try not to, we will make mistakes. Those things are going to happen. So if the safety measures that we have there, you know, these alarms that we have that are supposed to be alerting people um, when when something like this happens, if they're not working, why aren't they working? And we should, one of the things that I talked about is that we should be able to debrief after an incident happens and talk about what can we do to fix this? Can we maybe figure out a way to reduce these alarms so that in the future, if, if an alarm goes off, they actually take it seriously. They actually go and check on the patient. And then that patient doesn't die because they, no one went to look at them. No one went to check on them. Or we implement a rule as you're getting, if you're getting medications out of the medication cabinet, there is a no talking, there's a quiet zone. No one is allowed to talk to you and you're not allowed to talk to anyone else. You implement these uh, policies or, you know, things that people know is best practice 
And if everyone starts to do it, that's going to reduce the opportunities for that sort of thing to happen. But if we aren't able to debrief, if we know as soon as something like this happens, someone's going to get arrested, someone's going to have to pay because you your mistake costs someone's life, people are going to be less likely to, then to want to talk about it, talk about everything that happened, be honest and open about everything that, that they did or they didn't do and the mistake that they made. Um, and that is the real problem. That's the real problem with arresting healthcare professionals for making errors that lead to a patient's death. Well, David, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was fun, Tina. Thank you. Absolutely. Remind everybody where they can find your book. You can come to my house and I have a few on the shelf. Um, but if you don't want to do that, you can just go to Amazon. It's called Nurse Papa. It's a good read. You'll, you'll, you'll really enjoy it. Yep. I agree. You can send me an email at tina at goodnursebadners.com. You can find me at my website at goodnursebadners.com and on social media. Hey, goodnursebadners, guess what? I always love to hear from you guys. And I also want to remind you before we leave that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, like David, mm-hmm. be a good nurse. Thank you.